Baruka Tadunai Eloheinu Melech Allah Hazan Etaolat Ulo Betubo Behen Melech Haisel Rakhavim Rudotel Echol Bekol Basar Ki Leolam Kazo Asto Yutubo Hakalol Amen. Hello to everybody who's remote. Hello. And I think, uh, or not, the rights. The rights. Bellatora, Texas. Hoorah! And Brock's in Florida. And Brock's in Florida. But is Brock too, bu- Brock too busy or, or what? If Brock's watching, I actually wore my Walter PPQ for you. Today's the 37th portion of the year. It is the 16th of Sivan. This is the portion Shalach. And as we opened our Torah service, we announced as it was also announced at the end of the Torah service and now at the beginning of the portion it will announce it again at the end of the portion discussion that Colby and Michaela are now officially engaged. Woo! The soon to be Mrs. Colby Foster. It's got a ring. It's got a ring. Sir. One of these days, Colby and Michaela will be able to announce to the fellowship that is coming Wednesday. Susie and I will enjoy our 31st year. Yeah! <laughs> 31 years. And you know, you've been about four months ahead of me for, well, 31 years. Unbelievable. That is great. God bless you. And you married up. No doubt about it. Yes, indeed, um, I suspect that Christine and Isaac are watching remotely, although it may be nap time. Christine is now on her fourth day sans tonsils, and uh, Isaac is caring for her in his old age. He will, he will not be 30 on Tuesday, but it's hard to get much closer uh, than that. Are there any... could be closer. 30. You can't be closer to 30... Without being. Without being 30. Otherwise, you're not close to, you are. Yeah. Why are you? Don't speak. Don't speak. Don't speak. She will not speak. The rest of the, are you the one? She's not going to speak. You're walking I don't know. Save, save Dad, the, the I know. Oh, look. Both my daughters. Hello. Oh, man. Holy cow. Are there... For those of you watching from afar, uh, you can email questions at Men of Torah, and all my sons and sons-in-law will get that and help you to uh, to join in. Today is Flag Day, and uh, one of these flags actually flew over the Capitol many, many, many years ago and was awarded to me by the American Legion. Scholastic excellence. Oh! 
Yeah, I had a C minus. <laughs> All right, Joshua, bring it home, brother. All right. So, it is. It's a good one. We're 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 kicking off um, Shelach, and somehow, managed, we I don't have the portion in front of us. This is not good. But I'm about to because it's. Uh, Right smack dab in the middle of numbers. We've been we've been journeying with the children of Israel through the wilderness for a while now. We're about to journey with them for a lot longer. Um, but this is actually, I would say, this is probably like the, one of the saddest portions in the whole Torah. Because it's like, I mean, we're here, we're right here, and we and we blow it. And um, according to tradition, the events uh, conspiring at the end of this or middle of this portion. Um, where God uh, turns them away from the land of Israel is coming up for us um, soon. It's Tishba'av, which is the, the saddest day on the Jewish calendar. It is the day that the um, at least one or both temples were destroyed. Oh, both uh, temples were destroyed. Amazingly, on the same day. On the same day. Yeah, and it's uh, and there's a lot of other really tragic things that have happened throughout history to the Jewish people on that day. Um, and this is the first one, so I think it's it's a time to be somber. It's a time to take stock of um, some of the lessons we can learn from them. Because obviously, it, we believe that God oftentimes gives us an extra chance. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us opportunities. But there are some times where you, you that was your last chance at some level. There's consequences, and sometimes you can't recover from those, even when you're really sad about it later. Um, and that stands as a warning. You know, we, we think sometimes we, we always, especially if you if you've been tempted to sin, it's always easy to think, yeah, but you know, I can always say I'm sorry later, or I can always make up for it later. Uh, but sometimes there's no later, and sometimes um, your one opportunity to do something is the one opportunity you have, which is pretty intense. Uh, interestingly enough, this portion begins um, where God says, "Send men, if you please," and that is where we get the phrase shalach, which means to send. Um, Shlikim is what we refer to as uh, Yeshua's apostles because they are the sent ones. Um, and in this case, uh, the commentary from, um, I'm going to quote a lot probably from Chabad.org today. I want to highly recommend Chabad.org. It's a really cool website. Um, if it freaks you out just a little bit that I'm quoting from Orthodox Judaism, get over it. They're really cool. They got some good insights. This was, uh, they've been studying this part of the Bible a lot longer than most people have. So. Freedom. That's what that is. Freedom. Um, they, uh, they have a, one of the comments on this portion, um, this first line, send forth men. And uh, it's interesting because in Deuteronomy, we're going to read a slightly different account of this story. In Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people of Israel, I was approached by you. You said, send us spies to go into the land. And here, if you read it, it looks like God's saying, send spies. Well, according to Ju- Judaism's interpretation of the events, it starts the people of Israel. They come to Moses and say, Send us spies. And then Moses goes to God, and God says, Go ahead, you can do that. And so the commentary on this is really interesting. It's like it's, uh, the sages say that um, God responds back to Moses and says that, I've already said the land is good. you know, But if you want to basically uh, run the risk of ruining the whole thing, be my guest. And I think that's interesting because a lot of times we... Um, uh, I think it's sometimes it's hard for us to remember that God gave us as humans the opportunity to sin. And he, not because he wants us to, but because at some level um, that's part of the growth process is part of how we achieve like our, our greatest heights is by choosing literally to do what's right and not just being forced to do it because it's the only option. And so God gives them a choice here. He lets them do what they want to do and it creates problems. So, um, 
now we're diving in here, so feel free to jump in whenever one of you has a comment. I know you're feeling particularly controversial today, Mary, so I'm Maybe looking forward to it. Yes, sir. Oh. We'll start here, because even in front of me, and I'll get to you in a second. Okay. Uh, so, um, you know, send forth um, shalach. There, one of the things we talked about around our Shabbat table last night was, um, to me, there's a, an interesting parallel here um, <clears throat> because here you have um, Moses, or you know, Moses via the Word of God sending forth these um, twelve men, one from each tribe, to go in and spy out the land, right? <clears throat> and because they're sent. They're shlichim, right? They're, 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 each of them are a sh, uh, shaliach, a sent one. Um, and so there's a parallel uh, in Matthew mm. chapter 10 where it, it's written, And when he, he being Yeshua, had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. That's verse 1. So he says when his 12 disciples, right, students. Then in verse 2, now the names of the 12 apostles. So verse 1, he calls them disciples. Verse 2, he calls them apostles from the Greek word apostolos, which is the trans, the Greek translation of the Hebrew shaliach or shlichim, sent ones. So he calls the apostles, <clears throat> the 12 apostles are these, and then he names them. What we have here in Parsha Shalach is Moses sends forth 12 shlichim, 12 apostles, to go into the land, and then starting in verse 4, he names them, right? And what's interesting is um, um, when he sends them out, he says, don't go by way of the Gentiles or the city of the Samaritans. In other words, he's saying... Stay within Israel the, proper. within Israel proper within the land, right? Quote unquote. Mm. What are the spies sent to do? To spy out the land. Mm. So there's some really interesting parallels here, and the apostles are not apostles until they're sent. That's when they become apostles, because that's what an apostle is, right? So, um, so anyway, there's just some really really cool parallels between Moses, who is a type of Messiah sending his shlichim into the land, right, to survey the land, as it were. Moses, and, or I'm sorry, Yeshua in chapter 10 of Matthew is sending his shlichim to go into the land for the purpose of um, seeking the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, interesting parallel. Almost kind of like a redemption kind of thing. Absolutely. Of, uh, of this incident, which didn't turn out so well. Yes, sir? Well, in the second Moses, it's just a great deal there. So I had two things. Um, first, uh, I, I think I, you know, just based on your comments, I'm just going to use you as my example. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so in verse two, it says the word that we we want, especially in our own uh, culture, to skip over, is that he was to send men, not boys, not women, not kids. Not there really is, men. Right. There is a difference between men and women, as there always should be. 
But it's interesting as, as we read through the, the names of the men that were chosen and they were selected because of their character. Um, you know, if you were to compare me and, and Greg, I'm obviously taller. Everybody knows that. But that's not hard to do, so I wouldn't worry. <laughs> I always carry a handgun. He rarely carries a handgun. But you know what? All of these measures have nothing to do with being a man. Because I know Greg's wife, and I know his children. And one of the most godly men I've ever met is sitting right there. And to me, that defines him as a man. She defines him as a man. And he was to send men. These are guys that could care for, teach their families, and were known to be men. If he had you know, a couple of wimps in there, I think the people would have said, whoa, 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 I thought you were supposed to send men, right? So that's the first thing. And I think that we need to recognize that it's not by accident. Men are men because of who they are and what they do, not just that they're male. He didn't say send males. He said send men. And I think the Tzadik class really tries to promote that concept of men. What are you doing? I'm just going to raise my hand. <laughs> I see you. Continue. Contradistinction. Juxtaposition. Juxtaposition. I'm going to go on to my second point in hopes that you forget your first point. My second point is in verse 20. Um, and we've talked about this before. Uh, check and see whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. And oddly enough, after being told to be of good courage, he says to bring some fruit of the land. So it's obvious that Moses believes that there are trees from which they can bring the fruit. Mm. So the, the, the comment about see if there's any trees in it or not, it seems virtually impossible, even in a desert, that there wouldn't be even a single tree. And of course, Chabad and uh, many of the other Orthodox uh, studies compare, as does the, uh, the book of uh, Psalms, uh, Psalm 1, uh, and throughout the Word of God, compares trees with righteous men. And uh, the sages uh, of blessed memory would say that he's actually asking sort of in code, is there any righteous men in there? And specifically, the sages would say, is, is the oldest book of our Bible, Job. Job, is Job still there? Are there any trees? Are there any righteous men? And, you know, as, as I look at what's going on in our country today, especially with Flag Day, um, I think the biggest problem with Congress is, perhaps even the executive branch as well, is the lack of men, the lack of righteous men, the, the lack of integrity, and everything else that we boil into being a man. So. Um, if, if there's anything I learned from the beginning of this question, as you said, there's a lot here, but from the beginning, I want to stand up and be counted. I want to be, I want to do what causes my wife to be proud, that causes my children to understand they can stand against a crooked and perverse generation. They can be men and, and still flourish. 
Yes, I think did you still want your hand up or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do I hear? Uh, it's just on Dad's first point, which I agree with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is recorded. Yeah, it was about it was about men and how men are defined by uh, maybe they pour their lives into okay. such as their uh, wives and children. Hopefully, wives singular. Men <laughs> plural would have wives no, plural, just as a word woman. But so the idea, the idea of a man is that. He's a, um, a giver. That's the definition of a man is a giver. And so you don't have a man, you don't have a giver unless there's a receiver. You know, so a man is not fully a man unless there is something to give you. Know, right. you know, so that's why a, a man is not complete if he still needs to marry. And certainly not complete if he still needs to marry. Right. So he speaks so he speaks to single man with a pretty girl next to him. Yeah. <laughs> it's kinda like that bar on the computer, you know, it's like seventy eight percent complete. That's right. <laughs> 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 um, well, bringing up the distinguished men, that little quote, this was the first year where I didn't really because I've always thought of the spies in, in a negative way, like mm. think like, oh, what what idiots? How could they like miss this, you know? But it, this year it really struck, stuck out to me that it does, scripture itself, I mean, in retrospect, called them distinguished men for a reason, and the sages' take on what happens to them made so much more sense. It was perfectly in line with both of those at the same time, the fact that these were distinguished men and the fact that they messed up, because the whole issue was that, uh, according to the, the sages, the tradition being that they were they were a little too focused on the spiritual aspect of the land, and they were a little too comfortable with experiencing all of the miracles and the closeness that they had with God in the wilderness. And they knew that when they entered the land, it would be really hard. It would be a lot of labor. They would have to work the, the land, and, and they were worried that because of all of that, it would distract them from their, their mm-hmm. prayer time and, and their, their time with God. And so the idea being like that was almost... The, what drove them to sort of give uh, a negative report of something that was ultimately good and mm-hmm. that was the, the sage's point of like how we as, as participants in this faith and as, as those who are desiring to be righteous need to be aware of that because it's not always about the spiritual because the spiritual should all focus on what's around us and sanctifying this world as well and bringing God to, to where we are as opposed to always attempting to like lift ourselves up and out of this world. Right. Um, and, and that that is an excellent point. And I feel like it's consistent with a lot of, the, of what we learn in the apostolic scriptures as well. Yeah, and actually it's interesting because uh, Rabbi Zalman, um, again, Chabad.org, plays off of that concept. And he comments that the, uh, like with the, uh, the, these guys were good guys. In fact, if you read the commentary on this portion, they actually say that Joshua, they, they, you look at the tribes, they're all out of whack. They say that they were ranked based on how impressive the guys were. Joshua and Caleb are like three and five, so like this is a really like impressive group. And so Rabbi Zalman's point is that like they were like hyper spiritual, like they really connected with God in the wilderness, and they were afraid that not only would it be hard, it would distract them from Hashem, but that ultimately like it would be almost like a lesser service of God. Like the spiritual is so much better than the physical. It's like what. Like and so they, they, he he comments on how like there's a spiritual Israel and there's a spiritual Jerusalem and there's a spiritual temple as well as the physical, 
which is so much like Paul and Hebrews and all that kind of concept, even Galatians quoting like the heavenly Jerusalem. And, um, and so these guys were all wrapped up in the spiritual, and it's like, well, they were scared to lose that, like you're saying. And um, they say that Joshua and Caleb's response is to say, no, 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 no. Um, the physical is where we achieve the heights to be able to, like, to be able to make the most of the spiritual. Without the physical, you won't actually be able to do really what the spiritual is meant to be, which is why they say that the land is very, very good. So it's like the best is actually in the physical. And it's so cool you mentioned that because I don't know if uh, some of you may have been talking with some of our cool new mystics in the group. Um, and one of the things we've been studying uh, and looking at from that perspective is that like you have uh, the physical sometimes is not, is not enough by itself. You can get overly wrapped up in all of the actions that are in the Torah and miss the spiritual and that's not healthy either. But on the flip side of this, I'm so reminded when I was reading through this commentary of like the Christian Christian perspective, unfortunately, so often is like, well, forget the physical. It doesn't matter what I do in this world. It's all about how much I pray, how much I fast. I need to go in the desert alone and like lock myself in a room and just be there with God. And it's like, well, that's not what he meant. That wasn't the purpose. And if you do that, you're actually going to miss God and what he really has planned for you. So, Rebecca. On Greg's point, uh, reading this week on Chabad, I think we gave him half your traffic this week. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the spies going in, you know, they already have water from a rock, they have manna from heaven, they've had miracles, they have God dwelling in their midst, and they go up in the land and they see, you know, we're going to have to clear out the land and start a government and keep a government until the fields and have an army. And it wasn't that they were afraid they would fail, they knew they could do it, but they were afraid to succeed because when they did, they would have to do all those things. Mm-hmm. And the word of their, uh, their sin was not inspiring confidence in the people to go forth and do that. Mm-hmm. And, like, we're talking about the, the concept of, like, elevating the physical. And, like, because it is easy sometimes to look at the physical and think, like, why do we have to do this stuff? But um, when we were, I was talking with Taylor. I'm going to totally shock everyone and say that I think that the evil inclination is not entirely evil. Um, because the evil inclination is, according to some, some teachings in Judaism, the evil inclination is really just simply your physical, like, wants and desires. Which, if left to, if left to be in charge, is evil. Because if all you really think about is you know consuming food and drink and um, any kind of pleasure and whatever else, that's bad. At the same time, um, with truly righteous men can actually take those natural needs and desires and elevate them. So when we did, we just did a second ago. We bless God after we eat the food. We have actually taken this very physical experience. It has almost nothing to do with God and elevated it to the point of. Holiness, because we have used it as a means to keeping a commandment, keeping a mitzvah. Um, and so in the same way, like, the mistake here is to get focused so much on the spiritual, you lose sight of the fact that your goal is to elevate that spiritual. Um, and I think you were next. I'm going to go to you in a second. Yeah, mine's kind of weird. Oh, that's cool. Actually, is it a new subject, or are we staying on the same topic? Uh, verse 17. Um, okay, actually, let, me take, let him just make his comment Just, just okay. to tag on to what you just said, it was it's so ironic that, like, Despite that, the fact that like we are, you know, Joshua and Caleb were meant to be looking more at the physical and trying to elevate that, it's they are described as having a different spirit. Yeah. So it's like the exact opposite happened. In order to trying to achieve super spiritual heights, like the other spies were, they missed the point and didn't actually have the, the spirit that it took for Joshua and Caleb to get into the land, which I just thought was kind of ironic. So. Yeah, exactly. And it reminds me so much of the passage we were reading from Hebrews because like these guys had. They had all the stuff to succeed, but they, um, even though they were maybe wrapped up in the spiritual, they didn't have like that real faith with Hashem 
um, to make to really make the most of that. I mean, it's ironic that like a spirituality can be misdirected, but it can. And if you don't have, you can turn it into your own like form of pleasure seeking in a sense, if it's not really in connection with what Hashem wants. Because really, as, as Yeshua says, you know, it's, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Like that is the ultimate definition. Now, you can do a lot of the mitzvot from a very physical, heartless perspective and not really demonstrate love of Hashem, like, truly, because you don't, you're not doing it from the heart. But at the same time, if you don't do the mitzvot, it doesn't matter how, like, close you feel to Hashem, you're just not really plugged in. Yes, sir. Okay, so, verse 17, the pastor says, I love what he does. And Moses sent them to Latur at to to spy out is what that word Latour is translated as. However, it's actually a very con- controversial translation. To tour in Hebrew actually is very close to the e- the, the English equivalent to tour. Tour to go tour. That makes go, sense yeah, to be a, to be a tourist. And and so it's a spying which we see in Joshua when he actually sends out spies. That's a more of a, that's a there's a word for that. It's more of a reconnaissance militaristic type of thing. Not the word here. Not the same word that's used in the beginning of Deuteronomy as well. Ah. So this, so so really they, these people were tourists. Huh. And so why is that significant? And it's, so here's a mushroom and an analogy I'm going to pull of Disneyland. Okay. Because ah. you think of spirituality when you think of Disneyland. I think it's satanic spirituality. There's one person I know that, that said um, it's a really funny joke he tells. When he was a kid, and he'd go to, to on a vacation or to tour somewhere with the family, I was like, man, why is that always so grumpy? Like, when we go on vacations and tours and stuff. And then when he you know, became a man, had a family of his own, and kids of his own, he's like, now I understand. He's like, where else can I go to be to spend a lot of money, have my kids complain, and be uncomfortable all day? <laughs> go on a tour with my kids. And, um, and I think the point is that out of the 12, there was only 10 that really appreciated what they saw in the land. And it wasn't so much, I don't think. Like two, right? I'm sorry, the other two. way around. Yeah, the converse way I said. So there was only two that out of the 12 that appreciated what, what they actually saw. And that's very applicable today, I think, to specifically American Jewry and even the American Messianic world, who um, will, will, find, will find themselves in, in, in a situation if you're an American Jew, you're in America, and you go and you treat Israel like Disneyland, if you will. And you have this two week vacation that's paid by birthright and you, you can see all the sites and you leave Israel with a lot of cool photos on your iPad but no connection to, to the soul and you're really not, you don't want to fight for it because it's not, you didn't own it. You don't really want to go back. Exactly. Same thing in the Messianic world I see where you, you, you find a community or a, some sort of synagogue and you, you see it, you observe it for a little bit but it's not worth put, putting the effort to, to sustain it to fight for it, to own it. So, so most of the time you just kind of do your own thing, or start your own, or something. But there's there's a lack of observing something, and then and then wanting to fight for it to become part of it. Lack of commitment. Exactly, and that's what I think the ten were spies or tourists mm-hmm. really missed yeah. uh, when, when they went to see the land. I think that's an important lesson, and I'm guilty of this a lot of being a very um, a negative person, but yeah, I can always find 10 reasons why yeah. the idea will fail, <laughs> as opposed to finding the, like Caleb and like Joshua, um, irrespective of those reasons, why we have all hope and, and, and faith that something can succeed. Yeah, we were, um, a group of some of the young men have been reading through the apostolic writings and really basically trying to blow up 
everything you've ever heard about them and just try and imagine like what it what maybe if we don't if we don't take the typical Christian perspective, what else could it be saying? And we were talking we were talking about the parable of the mustard seed. And traditionally Christianity looks at the parable of the mustard seed, they see the mustard seed as being very small. And like that's if you just have faith like a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And I always, man, I tell you, that was one of the most disheartening things ever. It's like, my faith is crummy. Like, I can't barely make any, I can't even hardly believe that God can move mountains, much less actually make it happen. You know, it's like, so, you know, how, obviously I must be really small in my faith. But actually, everything I did more recently, I found out that the, um, the mustard seed is actually one of the most aggressive plants in a garden. And in fact, Judaism teaches that you can't plant it in a, in a normal garden because it will take over the garden. And um, then you'll run the, run the risk of mixing seeds, which you're not supposed to do. So they uh, they had to like cordon it off because it's such an aggressive plant, which is really ironic because it's very small. Like the circumstances that it starts in are really bad, but then it has these ambitions to take over the whole garden. And I feel like that's really what Yeshua was getting at with that parable. He's saying that the real faith is like you're saying, not looking at the circumstances. It's not looking at what's going on, um, but it's saying. What, where is it supposed to end up? It's looking at the end goal and not with the beginning. And um, having that ambition, that spiritual ambition, that whatever God wants me to do, I'm going to do with ease. And that's exactly what, what they say, uh, what Caleb and Joshua say. They're our bread. This is going to be a piece of cake. No, literally, no problem. Um, and so like that's, that's that flip perspective to what you're talking about where it's like, yeah, well, it's hot and I'm tired and, you know. Life's not as good as it could be, as opposed to being like, yeah, but God said rejoice always. So, Marianne. Yeah, I was uh, thinking kind of under the category of funny, but it's not, where they said in mine, it says that we felt like grasshoppers. Right. And I kind of thought that might get an indication of what their fears were, like maybe insignificant. We're, we're so insignificant. Mm. What were their fears? Yeah. You know, all that. And going back, sorry to jump around, but words. Because in the very first, I think the first line or two, mine says to explore the land. And I kind of wondered about that. Explore versus spy to me, there's two different things. And then Jonathan was saying this other word, too. They're all different, have slightly different meanings. What's what's the word for? Is that see you too or again, I think? It's root. So it's actually the same word. Is it root? Yes, sir. I was just thinking through, uh, you know, from the perspective of, of a, be, you know, being a, a father. I've been, we're, on Monday we're celebrating our 24th anniversary. Ooh, wow. And, uh, you know, ha- have eight children. And uh, it, it's amazing just seeing Hashem's perspective. He, when he says, I'm going to give you something, like he's going to give them the land, you know, the physical. He does give you physical things, you know? And he says, this is a blessing. Children are a blessing. Mm-hmm. Land is a blessing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but all those things, when you think of all the implications that, that, that they involve, he calls them blessings, but man, as a dad, I can look at him and go, your blessings are a lot of work. <laughs> oh, you know, it's children, Ooh, you know, all the, everything that goes along with the, the, the diapers and the, you know, the, the tantrums and dealing with attitudes, and it's a lot of work, you know, and, and, and the land, you're, you're going to work the land, you're going to, you know. Yeah, so, but not, no promise it will necessarily turn out. Exactly, but he, you know, so these guys, like you're saying, they were looking at it, 
it's so easy to, you know, look at all this stuff and go, you know, but and say it's overwhelming. You know, <coughs> I can't. You know, how can we do this? You know, as a dad, it's easy. It's the easiest thing to say, just take me home, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd rather be with you, you know, or something. But, you know, it, it's where he got upset with Israel. He said, you know, they don't know my ways. Mm-hmm. Because he, he has put on my heart so many times that, son, I want you to come to the place where you know that y- you're not going to ever catch up. You're not gonna do it. You're not gonna make it. You need me. Mm-hmm. That's my ways. Mm-hmm. Is that you don't need you don't need a bicycle. You don't need a, a, a car. You need me to send you know a rescue helicopter to you. You know what I'm saying? It, it's like you need to trust me <coughs> to go into the land. You need me to to do all these things. So his ways are for us to see who he is. Right. You know. That's what this was all about. Joshua and Kay, you know, they saw who he was, and they said, "We're going in." You know, we see yeah. who he is. You know, the others were looking at themselves, and they were looking at the they were looking at the the land, going, "So it's a blessing, but it's a lot of work." You know? Right. Mm-hmm. It's always true. So I got you, you, and then you. So Pete, me first. You first. You had your hand up first. I saw. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's all up to me, really. I was just gonna uh, dovetail off of uh, Marianne's thing about grasshoppers. Okay. Um, because We can eat grasshoppers. Those are totally kosh. But um, <coughs> it said that we felt like grasshoppers in their eyes. And then they said that the wrong thing that they said was that we were grasshoppers yeah. in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Like they saw us as grasshoppers, yeah. which is impossible for them to know. Right. Um, that, that shows they were imposing their own opinions and then there's a there's a uh, a tradition that says that one time when they were spying out the land or touring the land if you, you want to use that translation um, that one of these guys went eating a pomegranate one of the uh, bad guys the guys who had to die later on he was eating a pomegranate and then he tossed the shell uh, the 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 the, um, the, the, the husk, husk of the pomegranate they tossed it on the ground and the ten spies and the other two as well all 12 of them uh, slept in the pomegranate uh, that night because it was so big right wow. yeah it's huge pomegranates you know that's the coolest thing in the world this is a pomegranate the size of this room yeah yeah. Which I think supports the concept that they were on a vacation <coughs> touring. Because what do you yeah. do on a vacation, anyways? You just you eat, just eat and sleep. sleep. Huh? Yeah. Or you go <laughs> find the lar- world's largest ball of yarn. It's only yeah, it's three true. miles each. Yeah, <laughs> or the world's largest bottle of wine, which is what they did. Right, giant grapes. A big grape. But I like the fact that you mentioned the grasshopper thing because oh, one yeah. of the, like uh, one of the. What? Yeah. I, I liked all of it, but yeah. that particular. Um, because they, uh, one of the comments that I've read is that like, uh, when we talk about like speaking Lashon Ra, speaking, which we, we're going to learn a lot about in this particular portion of speaking evil of something or someone, uh, one of the things that one, um, I think it's Kofetz Kain, says you should also not speak Lashon Ra about yourself. Right, because that's also speaking evil of someone. Right, and even though it's about you. And it's really easy to do that. You can be very down on yourself. And it's so interesting, that, like if you look at what the, the spies say, 
they don't start by saying we were grasshoppers in their eyes and we felt like grasshoppers in our eyes. They start by saying we were grasshoppers in our eyes and we were grasshoppers in their eyes. And that's really the way that it is. Like if you look down on yourself, like like you you speak badly about yourself, you assume un- everybody else. You then you the assume everybody else sees mm-hmm. the same thing. Um, and that like and so that's really where it starts. Is it's like you only really have con- you have control almost like of how people see you based on how you see you. And um, it's so interesting because later, like the idea of reputation comes up again because Moses goes to God and says, "Wait, you can't wipe all these people out because those guys are going to say bad things about you." But again, it goes back to God is the originator of his reputation. He is the one who controls how other people perceive him. And ultimately, I mean, ultimately, obviously, with us as humans, we are, we're limited in scope. People can think bad about you even if you do really well. I mean, they might be envious or whatever the case may be. But it really, ultimately, it all starts on the inside. It's like if you don't see yourself as grasshoppers, it doesn't matter however people see you. And being honest with yourself to be humble, but at the same time being honest with yourself, you know, and not beating yourself up unnecessarily. Yes, sir. Um, I was going to just comment um, on verse 16, where we have this interesting um, interaction between Moses and Hosea, uh, where it says Moses um, Moses called Hosea ben Nun Yehoshua, and and I know we've talked about this, you know, in prior years in terms of you know the the fact that. A yud is added to his name to make to change it from Hosea, which means salvation, to Yehoshua, which means God. God saves. Um, but there's you know it's kind of like an insert that's kind of put in there, right? And of course it's there for for a reason. But um, it's interesting that it's Yehoshua who, of course, is is one of the two good spies. Right, has a good report. But ultimately, because the hand of God is on him, signified by the yud that's added to his name, he is the one, Yehoshua, who is selected to ultimately lead the children of Israel into the promised land, right? Mm-hmm. And to take the land. Um, and so, in that sense, he's also um, a type of Messiah because he brings them into the promise and brings them into the land. But there's an interesting uh, parallel in Zechariah um, chapter six, uh, verse eleven. Uh, this is this is God speaking through um, the prophet, and he's talking about as they're coming back from the Babylonian ex- exile. Verse eleven says, "And take silver and gold and make crowns and place one of them on the head of Yehoshua ben." Yehoshadak the Kohen Hagadol. So we have a high priest whose name is Yehoshua. Say to him, Thus said Adonai Zevaot, Behold, there is a man, his name is Zemach. Branch. The branch. He will flourish in his place. He will build the sanctuary of Adonai. He will build the sanctuary of Adonai. He will bear majesty. He will sit and rule upon his throne. The Kohen will be uh, uh, the Kohen will be upon his throne, and there will be a disposition of peace between um, between the two of them. And uh, that past those couple of verses there in Zechariah six, Chazal are um, are pretty much unanimous 
uh, I think they're unanimous, that mm-hmm. that is a messianic reference because of the reference to Zemach. But it's in connection with this Kohen Hagadol, Yehoshua. So there is um, one thought that there's a connection but back to this portion where you see Moses, uh, who is in essence sort of a, he's a priest, he's a Levite, right? Um, but he's also king in the sense that he's leading the people. Um, and so there's these two offices that are sort of in, in one sense, you know, um, Moses occupies both offices, as it were, which is a picture of Messiah who will be both king and priest. And this passage in uh, Zechariah is, is, you know, kind of talking about Yehoshua, who's the Kohen Hagadol, um, in, in connection with Zemach, who Judaism and Christianity agrees with them, is all referring to the Messiah. So it could be, I'm not saying that it is, but it could be that here in Zechariah, we actually have an allusion to the name of the Messiah, Yehoshua, um, which is significant to the fact that in the part portion we have this this kind of unique um, incident with Hosea becoming Yehoshua. So, uh, so anyway, kind of cool. Cool. Or, yes, the names are closely related, or they can be the same depending on how you translate it. But I don't know. The Yeshua, Yehoshua, I feel like there's a, the, the name of God is more present in Yehoshua than necessarily in Yeshua. Well, Yeshua well, is Aramaic. Aramaic. Yeah, okay. But his name was Josh. Could be. Anyway. Mm. <laughs> Got a great name. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, just for the sake of... Uh, you, you, yeah. and you. And you get the lady in the corner. Oh, and the lady in the corner. Wow. <laughs> okay, so a couple things. First, if everybody would just close your eyes for just a second. And I want you to think about... You're one of the 12 spies, and you're schlepping up over some hill and into the land. Okay. You're looking all around, smells, sights. It's a wonderful thing. Now I want you to look at yourself. Look at the other 11 men with you. How do you see these other men? Stand tall. Do they look Sephardi? Do they look Ashkenazi? Lots of beards. A lot of beards, maybe. Flowing robes, perhaps. All right, open your eyes. Look at me. What would they carry? Grapes. Not a PPK. Glock. Glock. PPK. Grapes on the way back, but on the way in. I just, I just don't think that we recognize that this this tourism party was certainly sent out to do some looking around, but they certainly wouldn't go unarmed. So I don't bring that up for a second minute or anything like that, or just because it's flying there, because I'm wearing a handgun. No, 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 no. I bring that up so that you would recognize that when we turn to Numbers chapter 13 and verse 13, when Caleb quiets the people, he is one of at least these 12 men who are standing there and they have been prepared to do battle if they were caught or if they were found out, okay? And it's amazing what, 
what Caleb does. He quiets them down and turns them towards Moses and says, we can, we can, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. I don't know. Maybe he had a sword. Could have been a, a Glock, but I'm sure he did not raise the weapon. I'm sure he just stood there and with the force and empathy of his countenance said to them, we can do it. Sadly, in verse 31, then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people. And you know what? This happens in, in our day. This happens in our life. This happens all the time. Whether you're in some kind of church uh, diaconate thing, elder thing, pastor search committee thing, whatever it may be, whether it's in the church, in the messianic movement, in our community, wherever it may be, we stand up and we say what we believe. And I think that we should be able to convince our fellow man of the truth. And up until this year, I always <coughs> did a ding on the dog. I did a ding on Caleb, the dog, because he was unable to convince them. And this year I realized it's not his job to convince them. It's his job and it's our job to speak the truth and to say what must be said. Whether the hearts turn, that's up to God. And God allowed them to refuse himself. God allowed them to refuse his grace. And that's what we read about in the Apostolic Scriptures. That there were men that opposed or pushed against the very grace of God. And that's what they did. I wonder what Caleb was thinking when they didn't go his way. I'm sure it was a little bit more impassioned than what we read. I wonder if he was bummed. I wonder if the next day, when all of a sudden word got around the camp that there was a plague but it only affected 10 guys. I wonder how he felt then. I kind of think Caleb and Joshua probably went 10 to 10 to pray for these guys. But I want to encourage you that this man represents the men that went and the men <coughs> should speak up. Now the other guys that spoke up right after him did what they thought was right. But at least they stood up and said what needed to be said. They said what was in their heart, what the Lord had moved them to say. Shame on us if we're in positions where we ought to be that little spot of righteousness, that little turning point in someone's life. And we don't say anything. We need to remember that everything we read after the second verse here describes men. And these men spoke. spoke. Speaking of men speaking, <coughs> the newest man to 
be on the verge of becoming a complete man. Does he look more Sephardi? Does he look more like Greg? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to create his own legacy. We're going to someday be saying, you know, that Colby guy, there are so many guys that want to be just like him. <laughs> That's already true. Yeah, look at the kids he's got. Oh, my goodness. You're up, Colby. What's up? In your mouth, the guy's here. There we go. Hey. I was noticing when I was reading the commentary that we usually give the spies a bad rap for coming back from the land and then giving their report. But God is just, and Ramban says that they don't get in trouble until verse 28 when they say a word in English that says, but, Michaela has informed me that is a fem. Um, so they're given like. Is a, it a fem minute? So they're given a factual report of the land, which is not a bad thing. And then it says, it says, the land flows of milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And then they're good up until there. And then it says, but the people that dwell in the land is powerful. The cities are fortified, very great. So they fell there. And then next verse, they bring up Amalek, which automatically strikes fear in the people. Mm. So I thought it was interesting that they, they're allowed and they're obligated to give factual reports. But when at the end they start spinning it to entice mm -hmm. fear and in their own opinions, that's when they get in trouble. Which would be the same thing, you know, I mean, I like that, that they're speaking evil against themselves and then they do it. But at the same time, even if they speak e evil against themselves, when it says they, they were like grasshoppers in our eyes, and so we were in theirs, even if they downgrade themselves, they're still not gonna get in trouble for that. But when they try to do the Christian thing and put their self in somebody else's shoes and try to determine what people actually believe instead of what they actually do, that's when they get in trouble because they don't know what how they were interpreted in this guy's eyes. Hmm. Instead well, of grasshoppers, he thought they were like cute kittens and he couldn't go into us. Could be. Yeah. And um, I'm thinking about like... Uzi carrying guy. Yeah. The, um, the sages play off of what you said about like the mixing of their comments that's true and not true. And one comment was that uh, that's the way that all like a good slander has to have a little bit of fact to it, otherwise people don't believe it. And they said that this is the this is the mark of like or the way that defamers act. They start with the good and go to the bad. And I've been so convicted by that because that's something I do all the time. It's like, you know, Jonathan, I really appreciate the hard work you're doing, but mm -hmm. you do everything perfectly. That's not really true. But the point <laughs> is that like that's the way we do that though. We always like with the kids or with friends or coworkers or well, whatever. We're, we're like, taught that way, right? You start with the praise, then you go to the criticism, bad. and then you like, end with the praise. One of the things that, um, one of, the, one of, one of the, the, the interesting teachings that I got, a good teaching that I got from ATI's like videos and conferences was on that idea that you can like, you sandwich the praise, mm -hmm. bad report, praise. And it's like, what this ends up doing, unfortunately, in the long run, it ends up really undercutting the praise because like I know like I got people now who like as soon as something good their immediately thought is but you know it's like oh well, I don't want to have that reputation like that's awful like I want to be able to just give you a compliment and you can take that and so like wanting to like to recognize that yeah it, we need to be more honest you know it's like nothing wrong with being honest but it's like when we start kind of manipulating the facts or manipulating what we want to say to try and um, deceive someone or to try and make us look better or whatever the case may be, like that's where we really run into trouble. So it's like, you know, you got something bad to say, just start with the bad and just get it over with and then hopefully maybe you have solutions for fixing it. That, that at least, you know, maybe provides like a uh, mitigation. But let's see if I can remember now. I think you were next and then you and then Marianne in the corner. Oh, I, that was a really good point that you just brought up and just to add on to that, one thing that we were learning recently was 
the other issue with that of the sandwiching praise and like a bad thing is usually the praise is like an inherent quality and then the bad thing is an action and by mixing the mm. two you almost begin to subtly imply like that you like you're inherently bad because uh -huh, of that yeah. instead of because normally the praise isn't something like you did something really good but you did something really bad it's like right. you are a good person but here's something bad, and so instead of just like focusing uh, yeah. on the action as opposed to that's a really good point. quality, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, but when it came to, I, I was just thinking about this cool demonstration later on in uh, the beginning of verse or the beginning of chapter 14. Like, I, one of the things I was thinking about when Moses and Aaron's response to the people sort of like getting all riled up and, and wanting to take you know rise up a leader to take them back to Egypt. They just like humble themselves, which is amazing because you know typically in an army and warrior like context like this, it, it's like who, who's going to go against the leader here? Like absolutely have them killed right now. Like you know you squelch any rebellion immediately. But it's cool that they their response to that is actually like falling on their faces and humbling themselves. And then of course God steps in, which is really cool because it shows how the a good leader like always has an authority above him. Like he's still subject to a greater authority being God. And then um, Kavad had some commentary on like Caleb's answer, which was like fascinating because it goes back to the whole idea of the spiritual versus the natural. Because I thought this was a good point. They were like, how come Caleb in responding to the bad report and the people who were getting really scared by that didn't respond with like, hey, but guys, remember all these miracles that have been taking place? Hmm. He only just says like, no, we can take it. Like it's just basically like saying what everybody's saying they can't do. He's only reiterating that instead of saying like, oh, well, here we list off all these great qualities and all these great experiences that we've had already in the wilderness. And the the point that Chabad was bringing up was hit their point. Joshua and Caleb's point was recognizing that no, no, we we need to. Um, I think they were saying something like. We've, we've already ascended like as far as we could spiritually in the wilderness, but now this is time to start like a new chapter in the land. And, we need to fo and that new chapter means like more physical as opposed to the reliance on miracles and everything. So we're going to be more, uh, I guess like more focused on just like the, the physical, which was we can take it because God said so. And that's pretty much all that does it for us. You know, and uh, which was kind of cool because there were several miracles that it listed, and it even there was a reference in the Yilkut Shimoni about like the fact that there was this additional one that I hadn't heard of before. But obviously, we know the Red Sea and the water from the rock, and they were sustained with manna from heaven. But it also adds that they were protected from scorpions and serpents, which is kind of interesting because it reminded me of Mr. Upham always brings up that. The picture was sort of ruined when Moses struck the rock twice because it was meant to be a picture of Messiah. But it seems similar because later on in Luke, Messiah references like the fact that he would give you authority over serpents and scorpions. And it sort of ruins it by them not really having the faith that God has protected us from these things all along. And so therefore he would protect us against anything else. Hmm. They didn't think that way. They, they didn't see what, we, what they were supposed to see out of that. Yeah, and I like the fact you mentioned the physical because I think that's one thing that um, Rabbi Gimpel, I tell you, if you, if you want, to, if you really need some good podcasts, you should pull up uh, Rabbi Gimpel's podcast in the book of Joshua, landofisrael.com. Um, excellent, really, really good stuff. And he does talk about like the, that physical stuff, like how 
it's like there's a time almost when you have to deal with the physical world and you have to like apply the things that you've learned to that and it's like the miracles aren't evident anymore and he uses the example of Jericho when they go up to the, the river of Jordan and the river of Jordan um, stops and the, the miracle is that the people of Israel walk across right on dry land but the people of Israel don't actually see it they say that if you look at the map on, based on where it says in, in the book of Joshua the water stops like way up here way out of like, the perspective of the people of Israel and so it's like it's so true I think with like a lot of things that happen to us and miracles in our lives we're surrounded by miracles like great things happen all the time but we don't see them and it's the need to like a, to apply that faith um, that says and, you know, everything that Hashem does for us is a miracle and like to, to appreciate the things around us all the time and that gets back to what we were talking about earlier, that elevating the physical. Because, yeah, we're surrounded by them constantly. God is doing new things. That's the idea of like a hundred blessings in a day and all that kind of concept. So there's like a lot going on there. Um, and uh, so that's just, I think that's really cool to like, again, see Hashem in the physical because it's not always evident like the book of Esther. He's not there, but he is there. Um, you guys, are you on the same subject or a new one? Because I, I want to make sure we cut. I was going to come Okay, to you guys talk, and we'll go back to these two in a second. <laughs> Peter, you're allowed to speak now. <laughs> I was just because you had just said what you had just said uh, about how miracles are all around us, and they're not evident anymore. They're very hidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I need to remember that. But that is the whole, we say the Shema, uh, we're supposed to say it at least twice a day when we rise up when we go down. That's kind of the main tenet of the Shema, is that fact. Um, mm. We say uh, Hashem Elohim Hashem Echad. Yeah. And um, Hashem is the name that's above all names. Uh, and that's his, his merciful name. That's the, his like, uh, uh, his, his, he makes himself known by that name. And then Elohim is. Is his concealment. That's where he's concealing himself in nature and stuff like mm. that. And to say that Hashem is Elohim, say that the yeah. same God who is manifests himself um, is, is also the one who's concealed himself within nature. But then to say that Hashem is one, right? Um, mm. We say it twice a day for that very reason to say that everything around us is, uh, is, uh, is because of Hashem. Right. That's very cool. I like that. Yes, sir. And just to, to your point, the sage is right that one of the greatest miracles of all is that the infinite dwells in the finite. Mm-hmm. And that, what, that, that that's the physical. Like, that alone should be, that should be, like, past and all the other miracles that they witnessed. Absolutely. Hashem's presence among us. Yes, sir. And then I will get to you, Marianne. Thank you for your patience. Um... What I was going to ask about is kind of another subject, so maybe I'll, I'll That's say fine. I'll, I can say that, and because I do have something along the same line, was that just watching Hashem taking them through the wilderness and um, you know, kind of carrying them along like a child until such a time ha- as He is raising them up to be righteous men, you know, that go out. It's kind of like you know, you show with His disciples. I mean, He was with them for whatever, three years, and, and then he leaves them, you know, and they and sends them out. I mean, once he, he goes to be with the Father or whatever. You know, he, and he, and there in the book of Acts, you see the, you see them growing and doing mighty things, you know, mighty things, but without him being exactly with them, mm-hmm. you know. 
So, I don't know, it's, uh, there is something about Hashem's ways that he, he does bring us to a point where we have to learn to walk, you know. Not by sight? Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Did you want to transition to the other question or you want to come back? Well, this is kind of a whatever. It, it's a question, and, and I want to preempt it by saying I am not a two-houser. <laughs> you know, or anything like that, you know, the, the whole, you know, Judah and Ephraim and everything. But, but in, you know, in the names of the tribes, Joshua comes from Ephraim and Caleb comes from Judah. Mm-hmm. And then we see in Ezekiel, you know, 37, where, I think it's 37 here, you know, where he's, uh, it says that he's going to take the stick of Judah and the stick of Joseph Ephraim and put them together. So I just, I don't know. If any of you have read anything of what the sages have said? Well, I mean, I do know that like Judah and Ephraim are symbolic mm-hmm. of the two houses of Israel in a general sense, not two houses like two house theory, right, but right, right. in the sense that it is like the completion of the Jewish people. And even today, um, Judaism sees the, the ten tribes as not being lost, per se, like we think of like traditional thoughts, but as still being out there. Like that is part of the idea is that there is a certain level of lostness. There is a certain level. So we talk about later in Ezekiel. I think it's the same portion. Mm-hmm. It talks about the exile from the north, mm-hmm. and that it will be so great they will no longer refer to the exile from Egypt or the exodus from Egypt, the the return of the exile from the north. And you think about like that coming into play here, where you have the ten tribes were scattered. They were sent all over the place, and yet Hashem is going to bring them. You know, as Yeshua talks about from the four corners we talked about with our Zitzi, you know, we pull up those four corners, that um, God is going to go to all places. So I think there's definitely a lot of symbolism in Joshua and Caleb being from those two groups because it's really the unity of who the people of Israel are. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it encompasses all of them. It's interesting who he chose to represent the two that he's going to bring together are the two that spoke the right words, you know. The Jew and the Gentiles. Yeah, yeah. yeah, quite possibly. Well, I think it also has to do with the blessings, right? The, the blessings that Joshua gave to his, to those two sons in particular were, were unique. Jacob, 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 Joseph, yeah. jo- Joseph, and Jacob gave from the Jacob a lot of J's. Yeah, Jacob gave the blessing uh, because obviously the blessing to Yehuda was that they would be they would lead the nation, right? Mm-hmm. The scepter would not depart from them, right? From Shiloh. Which is also a messianic reference, <coughs> but then we also have the unique um, uh, blessing uh, to Ephraim with the whole crossing of the hands and all of that. Right. Which is which, and and the prophecy was that he would become a great nation. Uh, he would become the fullness of the Goyim. Is how Shaul interprets it in his drash. So there's definitely something unique in the prophecies given to those two sons in particular, right. which then becomes, they become the symbolic picture of the entire nation, right? And at some level, I think there is, going back to what we talked about earlier, but the physical and spiritual, I think there is almost like a, a parallel there because with Judah, you get that representation of like kingship and leadership and whatnot, a very kind of esoteric, more spiritual kind of concept, um, although governing on earth. But then with Joseph, you get like a lot of a lot of Jacob's blessings are focused on you know bounty and fruit and growth and a lot of these physical material blessings, mm-hmm. and there is like that harmony. It's kind of cool too that Messiah is seen as Ben Yosef and Ben David, who is of Judah. So you, again, you have that that mixing of the physical and the spiritual coming together in a sense. 
Marianne, your turn. Yeah, see, that was what I was thinking about this passage where it's, um, they say that the report, the report is that the people were of great size, Nephilim. Yeah. So, I mean, wouldn't it be sort of normal to say, oh my gosh, these people are giants, worse grasshoppers, right? It just seems kind of not a bad thing necessarily. Kind of maybe goes to what Colby was talking about earlier, but that was one thing. The other thing is I've always seen this spying as a military action. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That, is that what it was and what the people then also assumed that it was a military action? And now someone's going to have to explain at some point what two-house means. Oh, two-house theory. <laughs> the two-house theory has got a lot of different, I guess, <laughs> angles to it. But basically that, like, everyone who had one, – one version of it is that those who have an interest in the God of Israel are at some level – part of Israel. So like the 10 tribes go abroad and they get lost, right? And then all these people who, you know, in the Gentile nations that just happen to like the God of Israel are actually secret um, Israelites. Um, and so basically the only problem with this, and I'm not, you've actually taught a little bit on it, I don't, I'm, I'm not entirely opposed to like the concept in, 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 completely. The only problem that I have with it is I feel like it, it removes the Gentiles from the equation. There are no Gentiles. They're actually all Israelites, just they were hidden. And as a result, I think you end up with, that misses a lot of the prophecies of the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And going back, again, just sorry to go back and forth, the physical versus or whatever, the, the, the spiritual, isn't that like it in a nutshell? The struggle, that's our struggle. Right. But see, I think that's one of the things the sages talk so much about this world is the world to come. And the blessings in this world are special and actually almost of more significance than the blessings in the world to come. Because in this world, you're like, you're forced to work for it. It's part of what you have to do to like elevate this world. And so that's like of more merit and more beauty than like in the world to come, where it just comes naturally. So the world to come is the reward. But it's only really relevant because of what you've done through here. You struggle here. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a good question, and it's actually how Greg Upham and I met. First time was at the Gordon's house. Two, everybody, the two houses, yeah. Um, everybody was eating their food and everything. And Greg and I were, were going back and forth with, with the, the two house thing. Um, and I, I have learned greatly from him. Uh, but in a nutshell, the two house fundamentally comes back to the separation of the people of God within the land, that there was a northern kingdom yeah. with ten tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin. And these are those two houses that are described, and that Ezekiel was told to take two sticks, and that these represent the two houses of Israel, and put them together in your hand as if they look like one stick. And God proclaims with no equivocation I'm going to make these guys come back together again and yet when we look in history we see that the northern tribes were exiled to Assyria you know like a hundred years before the southern tribes were taken by Babylonia and Babylonia had already taken Assyria so now they're at least they're all in the same kingdom but there's definitely two separate Houses, But God says he's going to bring them back together again. And whatever we believe about the two-house theory or the two-house 
thing. We need to remember that regardless, he's going to bring them back together again. But like Joshua said, if it's all meaning that everybody in this room, some way, shape, or form, has Jewish blood way back when, who knows how, um, you know what? Many, many folks in here could claim something like that. My people come from an area where we had the largest Torah uh, community and learning center in all of Italy, in most of Europe. I am Italian. I am a Gentile. I am not a Jew. No Jewish blood, to my knowledge, and don't care. Because one of the promises to Abraham was that his seed, Messiah Yeshua, would be a blessing to all the Gentiles like this Italian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and he's going to be read in, in this very portion. We exactly. see that God, God's all about bringing that equality, Amen. bringing the people who are outside in the kingdom and giving them the same laws the Jew and the proselyte and the Gentile. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Um, so going back a little bit and then kind of tying what we just said, um, to the blessings of Jacob to his sons, the blessing to Judah, of course, is um, very messianic. And um, one of the messianic, part of the messianic blessing is an abundance of wine. And you go tie your, the rope um, <laughs> right. yeah. tie your donkey to the grape or vine, you know, and your baby or laundry your clothes in wine, all this. Um, and Jen and I were talking this morning, last night, and about, you know, why did he bring back grapes, you know, to the land? These grapes on these two poles, you know, it's like a huge bundle of grapes. Would you bring back cucumbers? <laughs> but I'm thinking, I'm wondering if that's, if that's, if that's like a remez to you know, the blessing of, of to the Judah, of the king through here, Messiah coming, like, of an abundance of wine, like, if this is a foreshadowing of that, like, there's here's the problems that take place. And what, to, to dovetail onto that, um, <coughs> yeah, we, I mean, we do have, we reached the Valley of Eshkol, right? The Valley of Cluster because we bring back this cluster of grapes that's so big that it takes two men carrying it on a pole along with the pomegranate that apparently is as big as the room and whatever, right? So, so but, but keep, keep in mind, though, again, it, 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 to, to move away from the physical for just a minute because um, it, the, it, at a more spiritual level, a madrashic level, right, the land, the promised land, is a picture of the Messianic age. Okay, so what is the evidence? We, we went in to, to tour or spy out the land. What's the evidence that we bring back, right? We bring back this um, amazing abundance of which the chief thing is these grapes, the fruit of the vine, as it were, right? Because... The fruit of the vine is symbolic of blessing and joy, right? And that's the evidence that the land is good and fruitful and bountiful, which is a picture, as it were, of the messianic age when it will be a time of plenty and bounty and you know all of those kind of attributes. So we're standing at the edge where we could have gone in and and we could have entered, as it were, the Messianic age at that point, right, spiritually speaking. 
but we didn't because we lacked faith and we lacked faith in ourselves first and faith in God second, right? Uh, and we rejected God's anointed, right? We were ready to stone Moses mm-hmm. and Aaron. And pick a new leader. Okay, and pick a new leader. So, but we bring, but the evidence we bring back as proof that the land truly is blessed by God is the grapes, right? The parallel, again, we now go to to Messiah Yeshua, right? Messiah, when he comes the first time, after he's immersed by Yochanan and he goes into the desert for 40 days and comes back, he goes to a particular event, right? A wedding in Cana. We love weddings. And what's we the very wedding. first what's the very first miracle that he does? He he you know, he changes the water into wine, right? So and it's symbolic. There's a parallel here because he's basically the message of Yeshua when he came was repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is he saying? Get yourself right because you know, the messianic age might start any moment because I'm here. And the evidence that the messianic age is upon you begins with him changing water to wine, Mm -hmm. just like they bring the grapes back Mm -hmm. as evidence, Mm -hmm. right? But what happens? Just like this generation in the wilderness who who had unbelief and doubt and ultimately rejected Moses, God's anointed, wanted to stone him, what do they do to Messiah? They refused to believe the signs they saw, right? Because if you read the narrative here, why is God upset? He says, how long are they going to refuse to believe? You know, they've seen my signs, they've seen my wonders, and yet they continue to doubt. That's it. They're done. I'm going to kill them all. No, I'm starting over with you, right? Moses being the type of Messiah intercedes and God relents, right? But the judgment is, no, you're going to turn around, you're going to march back into the wilderness, and for every day that you had the opportunity to seize the messianic kingdom and you didn't because of your doubt and unbelief you're going to wander in the wilderness for a year for each day and you're going to drop dead in the wilderness and then Yehoshua will lead us back into the promised land so here we have the same parallel with Yeshua he comes, his message is repent, get yourself ready because the kingdom of heaven is at hand why is it at hand? Because Messiah is here. I'm in your midst. They refuse to believe. They reject him. Um, in, in his case, they actually do cut him off. They wanted to cut off Moses, but they actually succeed in cutting off Messiah. Of course, we know that had to happen for other reasons. But the point is, the generation that rejected Yeshua and all the signs that they saw him do is compared to the same generation that we read here. They were both compared as evil and wicked generations. We read a little bit of that in the in the um, reading from the Greek scriptures today, right? So there's an incredible parallel here, right? And there's a, there's a principle Chazal teaches us that what happens to the fathers happens to the sons. So this thing that we're reading about in the Torah portion, you know, actually, literally happened. It's history, it's history but it also was setting up a, a stage, prophetic stage, if you will, of kind of it was going to re, it's going to repeat, right? And it did with Yeshua because that generation is likened to the wicked generation that we're reading about in this Torah portion. Right. And the parallel is incredible because what's the greatest sign that Messiah did? Rose from the dead. Rose from the dead. 
right? They ask, what's your, what sign? What, give us a sign. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give you any sign except this, the sign of Yonah, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He, they cut him off. They reject him. They cut him off. He goes into the grave. Three days later, he comes out. And then what does he do? He walks among us for how long? 14 days. 40 days. How long were the spies touring the land? 40, 40 days, right? So we have this parallel, and then at the end of the 40 days, Yeshua, of course, ascends and returns to Hashemayim. But what's the judgment? What's the judgment on the generation of Yeshua who rejected him? They're exiled. They're exiled, and 40 years to the year on the same day that they rejected the, the messianic age as it were here that they could have taken the same day Tisha B'Av the second temple is destroyed oh, wow. Jerusalem is destroyed and thus begins the Roman exile which we have never recovered from mm. so the parallel here is incredible um, and you can't make that stuff up you can't that just, it's just not, it's not co- coincidental right so um what we're reading, these stories that we read about that happened to our forefathers is not just cool history. It's, it was all, it's all microcosms, right? Um, because everything in the, in the, in the Torah and Tanakh, it's all prophetic at some level. It's actual literal, but in most cases, unless it's not, but it's, it's actual, but it's also prophetic. And so the, parallels here uh, are incredible but the significance of the grapes is it was the evidence that the, this was this was the promised land this was the messianic age they had the opportunity if they would have just had the faith they had the opportunity to begin the, to begin the redemption the final redemption as it were right there Amen. That's right. And, they, and they didn't seize it they had the same opportunity when Yeshua came and they didn't seize it but Yehoshua will come back and will ultimately lead his people in to the messianic age. Gregory, it was cool um, about the uh, parallel between abundance and like something to do with Messiah. Because I, I was thinking the other thing, of course, that we're waiting for is the third temple, and the all the sacrifices, especially in this particular portion, when it comes to like the wine libations and oil and all this. One could almost see that as almost wasteful, but it's really just a sign of abundance. Hmm. It's like you have so much wine, give some to God. You have so much. He can pour it in the fire. Exactly. Yeah. It's just. It's really cool that the temple and the tabernacle really symbolized like a sign of abundance because Hmm. there's just there was never a lack. You know, they would bring all these animals, they would bring bread and everything, but it wasn't like they were taking away from somebody and he was going to starve because of it. It was always extra. Um, it, It was the first of the extra, but still extra and that's another sign of course of Yeshua's return is that there will be abundance uh, most especially for his people and then I did have one question um, I was thinking about as we were talking about the generation that died in the wilderness and remembering I don't know if this if this is how it should be but so the census of that particular generation started at 20 mm-hmm. and I was just wondering why that would seem like that's almost the age of like accountability because like anyone younger than 20 in that case wouldn't have been necessarily counted with the rebellious generation who died in the wilderness so if that is the case then where does the where why is that not like the bar mitzvah age of like now there is a secondary stage there i feel like i've heard and i can't remember the distinction but like because 
because bar mitzvah is like the age of accountability to keeping the mitzvot, but there is something significant about 20. Well, but I, I, no, here's my, here's my, I'll give you my take. Not that my take's right, but you have 20 was the age that you, you were, then at that point you're able to fight. Right. You joined the army, as it were, right? What's, what is required to possess the land? Fighting. You've got to be able to fight. Right. So the significance to the 20 for purposes of who was, who was, um, held accountable, it was all the men of fighting age because they should have taken it upon themselves mm-hmm. to possess the land. Mm-hmm. If you're less than twenty, you're not able to you're not able or expected to fight. So you you it was not your decision one way or the other. But right. if you're if you are a if you're old enough to fight, then you should have said no, let's go take the land. Yeah. One of the things Julian and I were reading through this portion, we noticed that one of the complaints that they have, the, the, the spies, is they bring up all the groups they're going to fight against, and the Canaanite is there, and the Amalekite is there, and all this stuff. And I look at Julianne, I'm like, wait a minute, this is a surprise? Hasn't God been saying, like, for the last, like, two, three years, you're going to take the land from the Canaanite, and the Jebusite, and the Amalekite, and the... And the I'm going to drive them I'm out. I'm going to drive them out. Right. And it's like, but, the, but that's one of the spies, like, big points. Like, that's, like, their final mm. clincher. Like, oh, and those guys are there. And it's like, right. Like, yeah, of course. And I was telling Julian, I said, it's so much like Yeshua when he, he makes his promise, like, in this world we're going to have trouble. And it's like, and people are like, oh, bad things are happening. <laughs> like, I can't believe bad stuff is happening. And it's really, like, getting me down. And it's really, like, I'm, I'm really, you know, discouraged and depressed and whatever else. And it's like, well, that's kind of, <laughs> we're still in a fallen world. Like, that's normal. But then the, we have to finish the, the passage where Yeshua says, but I have overcome the world. And that's the same thing here. It's like, yeah, those guys are there. And actually, God mentions those guys later. He's like, you guys need to leave because the Canaanite and the Amalekite are over there. And they're pretty scary stuff. And right now, you're not in a place to beat them. So, yes, they are intimidating, just like you know, life has intimidating factors in it. But at the end, God is the tool we have to overcome those. So we shouldn't be you know, brought down by them. Colby? One of the reasons that I believe Rashi said that they were... Caleb was so confident that they could take them down is because he didn't see any trees. He said he didn't see Job there, and they Job was in, interpreted as the preserver of Canaan because mm-hmm. he was a study. So because there was no more righteous men that could preserve the nation, that it was game on. And for the sake of Job, Canaan was actually kept alive. Right, which just means that basically the reason why the United States is still here is because of people like this room. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, if the Canaanites and the Amalekites were not there, it would have been the wrong address. <laughs> right. Does that go towards the thing where it says, you know, to be in the world but not of it or something like that? Is that actually biblical? I don't even know. Well, I mean... Well, not that crazy thing. Because not I so think I, I always struggle with that. Like, third Hezekiah says that. This and you're not, but you're, I don't know. How does that work? Here I am, and I'm human, and I have. Right, but see, you are you are you, you are a part yeah, of this exactly. world, and yet, um, and you are expected to be like. I mean, that's part of the thing. Is like Paul Paul deals with this like awkwardness of I'm ready to move on. I'm ready for what God has for me in the world to come. But at the same time, I have a role here, yeah. and I'm not ready to leave that either. And um, I think that that is really I think at some level where we're supposed to be. Where we're like, okay, God, if you want to take me, if that's it, I'm done. That's fine. But if, if, as long as you've got me here, there's a purpose for being here. Um, 
and that is something that I'm focused on now. I'm not like living, not you know, think another phrase is also not biblical, but sounds like it could be not being too heavenly minded, you know, earthly good. You know, it's like you get lost in the wrong part of the world. Yes, sir. Just to comment on that, you know, the concept of being a sojourner, right, which we get from um, originally from Abraham, right doesn't mean that, okay, if we're a sojourner in a strange land, meaning, you know, this isn't necessarily our home, etc., etc., right? It doesn't mean that you're not supposed to um, be engaged and, and contribute and flourish where you are, because you are in the world, and you have to interact in the world, and you cannot just, you know, um, lock yourself, well, I mean, I guess you could, but you shouldn't actually be violating the Torah if you did that. But you, you, you have to engage with the physical world around you. But I think the point of that verse and the point of what Shaul is trying to get to is if you understand that this is all temporal, right, don't let it, don't, don't become attached to it to the point where you can't give it up, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's like Abraham. What was Abraham? He was a sojourner. You know, he was described as a sojourner in a strange land. But yet, you know, he obviously, you know, conducted commerce, and he, you know, he was wealthy, and he interacted, and you know, all of those things. He was part of the world in which he lived. But he he was looking for a city whose maker was not man, right? Um, uh, so here he is, he's living in tents. He has no permanent dwelling, but he's looking for a permanent structure whose maker is Hashem, right? So I think that's the kind of the concept is uh, you're in the world, you got to deal with the world. You're not of the world in the sense that, um, in the sense that both you're from a spiritual perspective, you you're not you haven't you're not adopting the culture and the beliefs and the ungodly practices and everything else that we find in the world around us. But they're in your face. In your Absolutely, because you live in the world. How do you, then it's difficult to figure out how to you know when you say interact with it. And what Joseph was saying earlier about standing up and speaking, you know, was right. Doing. If it was if it was easy, I mean, everybody would be doing it, right? Right now, coming after you with pitchforks or whatever, but <laughs> you know you're you're shunned, maybe or like the crazy person, or I don't, I mean, I don't even know. It's, well, it didn't work out too well for Joshua and Caleb <laughs> for the next forty years. Yeah, and that's another thing, that whole community thing, because then what about the people who do try to do the right thing? They seem to be. Struggle with that's a struggle thing for me. I, I don't like it. And but again, I think it's getting back to the difference between this world and the world to come. Because um, there's a passage, there's a, there's a teaching about Jacob that Jacob gets really comfortable by Shechem. He's like, okay, life is good. I'm in the land. I finally got back from, from being at Laban's house, and we we greeted Esau, and everything's good. And he he settles down, and he's like, huh. and according to this midrash, God's like, oh, what are you doing? you think you're a righteous man and you're going to be able to just rest here on earth? No. Because 
that's not where your rest is. Like, that is where, this is where you work. This is, as Yeshua says, you know, work while it is still day, night is coming. It's like, this is where you work. And that's not to say that, like, we don't rest on Shabbat, but the saying that, like, it's going to, life is tough. There's going to be challenges, be difficulties. There's going to be people who think you're crazy. There's going to be, this is not where we take it easy. Or just the yearning. Well, but you've got to make the most of each day, because even though we have a Shabbat at the end of each week, we are, we are also instructed to not be looking forward to Shabbat in the sense that, like, it overpowers our, our approach to each day. If we were to live in Shabbat, we wouldn't have Shabbat. We have to work throughout the week to get to Shabbat. And the same thing is true, I think, of the world to come. If we only are thinking about it, planning it, wanting it, desiring it, focused on it, and we miss the life we're living, then it's like, it's like trying to pretend that Tuesday is Shabbat. It's not, and you have to work to get there. Pete, we're getting the final comments, by the oh, way. Cool. So well, Pete's going to talk, and we're gonna maybe say one or two things, and we'll wrap up. Just on that point, though, because that is what we've been discussing this whole time, um, and that's the essence of all of Christianic thought, is the idea of like this world, and how do we deal with it? And like you said, um, uh, the Yetzirah is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just your physical nature, even this whole world around us, and the whole idea of the soul versus the body, mm-hmm. and how the soul hates being in its body, you know, it only wants to be up with God, you know, that's where it's supposed to be, but it's been put in this body for a reason, because it's only in this body that it can keep the Torah, mm-hmm. which is the whole duty of man. Um, there's this really famous story about the Vilna Gaon, the famous sage, and he's on his deathbed, and he holds a zizi, and he starts crying, because um, Hmm? The Vilna was the time, wasn't it? Was he Italy? I think ah! he may have been. But you know, <laughs> he's holding a ZT and he looks at it and he starts crying because he, he says you can, in this world, you can buy ZT for like two tofets or something. Very cheap. You can buy ZT. But as soon as he dies, he can't do that. He can't keep the mitzvah of, of ZT when he's dead. Because it's only in this world where we can do that. Um, Which is why at a Jewish funeral, we actually tear the seat mm. from the deceased Talit as symbolic of the fact that, okay, you're now asleep in the grave. Not only are you not held, not only are you no longer responsible for keeping the Torah, but you can't. You, you can't do anything can't anymore. Done. Right. Wow. So this, this world is like primo ground for Torah keeping. And everything, every single occurrence and everything that happens to you has an opportunity to be elevated, mm. um, to do all for the sake of heaven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. And it's funny because the sages, uh, thinking about that, like the beauty of the mitzvot and like how wonderful they are. And I think sometimes as we get into this faith, especially if you were new to it and you're like, oh, man, I can't do this anymore and I really used to like pepperoni pizza and you know, whatever the case may be. And it's like, it becomes very easy to sometimes be like depressed are discouraged or disappointed because of things you can't do. What Judaism wants it, it teaches this principle that we're supposed to put the, like, the light in the mitzvot. Like, it's a really great thing. And it's cool that in this passage, one of the, the commentaries that I read this week was that, um, again, Chabad.org, and I keep plugging that, um, they had a, they commented that like as soon as they get kicked out of the land, they said, you can't come in, you got to wander for 40 years. The very next thing that Hashem does is he gives them a new mitzvah. And that was the commandment that when you come, when you do get to come into the land, you're going to do these offerings. And it's like that's so cool. And again, here at the end, we're gonna as we get kind of wrapping up, 
um, we get to the end of this portion, and this guy breaks Shabbat, and it's and, and, and they they they're this is a big deal. In fact, it's a huge deal because then they have to stone him, and it's like this huge national tragedy that this guy broke Shabbat, and then the whole community had to kill him. I mean, this is like this would be seriously scar tissue bad emotional stuff. And God's immediate response is a mitzvah. Like instead of saying, "We're going to talk." This was bad. I'm so sorry. Let's, you know, we need to grieve a little bit. Let's work through this. It, the answer is a mitzvah. It's like, here's how we fix this. Let's never do this again. Right. Let's make sure we got these in front of us at all times so we can remember the commandments of Hashem. And it's like, that's so cool Like to see that as, you know, it's a mitzvah and, and grabbing a hold of that mitzvah. One of the things, um, I had a roommate one time who wrestled with depression. And he said that um, what he was taught to do by someone who was helping him get out of it is, is to go running. Which, if you think about it, is like exactly what you do not want to do when you're depressed. You want to just lay in bed and just, you know, the world is awful and I hate it and I just want to stay here. And the point was saying is you have to get past that. And that's so cool that like in the same way, like Hashem, he just gives us something else to do, another good deed to do to like elevate us, to elevate the world around us and help like pull us out of that dark place. So in this first case, it was getting out of that tragedy of not being able to go into the land. And then in this case, it's like getting past this tragedy of this person breaking and, and suffering the consequences. The, the way he does that is he gives us a mitzvah. Just like my mom, she got up there to do the, the um, yard site comment. And what's in the middle of the prayer is, I'll give charity on behalf of this person. Like, again, it's like, how do we, how do we fix the problems in our lives? How do we get over the hard things? We do mitzvah. Yes, sir. And just that—that's why we are said to be like representatives of God. You know, like uh, Rabbi Gimpel's thing about like taking the name of God with you in vain is is what we shouldn't do. And it's because the very fact that we we don't even have to necessarily claim it, but the fact that we're keeping mitzvot means that we are essentially reflecting the light of Hashem in this world because that is His light, is the mitzvot. And then you know Yeshua's comments about like not hiding it. It is supposed to be very public. And in that regard, you, you, you shouldn't, you need to be very careful in your keeping of it so that it's not misrepresented at all. <clears throat> Absolutely. Quick, quick thing, too, on that when I read it. I didn't see um, the wearing of the fringe as being strictly for men in this passage unless I missed something before or after. I didn't really, really yeah. It doesn't say. Really okay. see that. And is there some place else where it's for It doesn't say. It's a tradition that the times yeah. these commandments. Don't apply to women. So it's, it says you see the tzitzit, which means you wouldn't really see it at night. So it's a daytime deal. And so because it's time based, they say it doesn't apply to women. Some women do wear them. Um, it's just not an orthodox perspective. It's, you know, the, the, the word is B'nai Israel, right? Which um, my understanding is it can, be, it can be interpreted as children or sons. Um, and, and often it's only by tradition that we know how to how to interpret it, right? So, um, but the reason the reason why, at least in an Orthodox community, you won't see women wearing zitzi is because traditionally they understand it to be um, speaking to the sons of Israel that this was their their commandment to wear the zitzi, um, and so therefore it's understood to be a man's garment mm -hmm. and we have another Torah prohibition that says 
man shall not wear women's clothing and women shall not wear men's clothing. So therefore, to the extent you believe that tzitzit is a man's garment, then you would not wear it if you're a woman because you do not want to wear men's clothing because that would be a violation of the Torah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. On that note, one of the other reasons I actually listened to a recent discussion by Rabbi Moss, who is a rabbi in Sydney, frequent contributor to Chabad.org. <laughs> and he talks about the prayer in the beginning of the Siddur that men pray, that we, should, that we pray every morning. Um, Thank you, God, for not having made me a woman. And the, what that means. And what it does not mean is that, thank you, God, that I am above that. Or that being, or if I were that, it would be a bad thing. Uh, rather, what he's saying is, thank you, God, for, if you think, thank you, God, for not having made me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman of those, the Jewish male is able to keep more mitzvot than those according to the Jewish understanding for any, a, any of the other categories. Jew, for a Gentile, he gets the Noachad laws, that's great. The Jewish slave can't keep everything, but the, the woman can only keep the positive time-bound commandments, um, and then the man gets to keep them all, which is only seven more than the woman, believe it or not. It's actually just tefillin, tzitzit, etc. And the woman's corresponding prayer would be, thank you, God, for having made me according to your will. And the rabbi asks, why is the man's portion put in the negative, and why is the woman's portion put in the positive? In other words, thank you, God, for not having made me a woman, but the woman says, thank you, Lord, for making me according to your will, which is a positive. And he says that the reason is that the sheer existence for a Jewish male is nothing. Um, you only gain <coughs> benefit or detriment to your existence by either keeping or neglecting the mitzvot. So you can't say, thank you for having made me a man, because it's nothing to be made a man. It's only something if you actually keep mitzvot. Mm. So mm. on that, <coughs> the woman does not have to pray that because she's made according to Hashem's will. In what way, the rabbi asks. Well, the man has to have reminders, visual reminders, to keep certain commandments. Who was it that sinned with Shabbat? Here it was a man. So therefore, the men get tzitzit in order to remind them. On the opposite of that, the woman can say, you have made me according to your will. It is something for a woman to, sh to have sheer existence, where the man does not have that privilege. So a woman is made according to God's will in the sense that she does not need visual reminders such as tefillin, tzitzit, um, other things. She can if she wants to, but it's unnecessary. Uh, like a woman does not have to sit in sukkah or, or below the shofar. She can, but she doesn't have to, uh, because these are reminders. And the men need the reminders, but the women are created with these reminders inherently within their souls, which is why they can just simply say, thank you for making me according to your will. Um, and the rabbi tops us off by saying, and we know this because when God created everything, he starts from the lowest and goes to the top. So you've got inanimate objects, stars, planets, etc., then living, and then you've got man, and then the pinnacle of creation is actually, believe it or not, the woman. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so to pray, like, thank you for not having made me a woman, is both a, it's not meant to be like a good thing. It's just saying, thank you that I get to keep more mitzvot, but the woman, at the other hand, gets to say, thank you for making me according to your will, which is actually a better prayer 
than the man's. <laughs> Very interesting. Oh, man. That was cool. Pete, take us home. We have we have enough time for whatever it is you're saying right now. Oh, if you say it fast. If you say it fast, she's uh, right. <laughs> talk at the same time and we can hear who's you known. I already kind of changed the subject though. Oh, Two minutes. Pete, Pete or Greg, is, you, is it on the same time? topic? Pete, go. Then Greg is over and then we're done. Okay. Well, it was about, kind of was on Taylor's point. But not really. It was, it was Thanksgiving. So, uh, the difference between uh, men and women, speaking of that, is that we have the command about separating the dough from the challah in this portion. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, that one. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking a lot about that this week, about challah in specific. Um, so, and so that I was just thinking about this whole thing. I'm trying to wrap my head around it, even as I speak. Um, but so traditionally, the woman makes the challah every week. And it's, it's one of those special parts of Shabbat, is the woman makes the challah bread, right? And so it is asked, why does the woman make the challah bread and not the man? And uh, it has to do with Adam and challah in the garden. Uh, Adam is actually called the challah of the world. So um, Chava seeds Adam, the fruit from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge mm -hmm. of the people, and, um, and hence this fallen world. And so in rectification for that, uh, the tradition says Chava, uh, uh, Chava's descendants, all the women, now uh, make the challah every week uh, to rectify the sin of Eve um, every week and they do it she has to take the dough out uh, as per the mitzvah right? and so we have that right? so that's part one is that the women are, are rectifying Eve's mistake which has messed up a lot of the world but um, so on the table you have these two loaves of bread and everyone has a different tradition for how they're going to be braided and such but uh, on a high level, they all look the same, like uh, two long loaves, right? Which is um, is like two bobs. Right? So you have two bobs, and then um, and then so here is this really interesting idea: is that um, the man is given the bread, right? And he ta he takes it and he breaks the bread, um, one of the loaves. And then tradition says he breaks the bread, he puts uh, one half down, he picks up the other full loaf. So he's holding a broken one and a whole one. And uh, he blesses God, he says, Baruch Hashem. Um, and so if you look at what he's doing, he's just broken one of the loaves, uh, a bob. So a broken bob is now two yods, right? So he's holding a yod, his right hand, and he's holding it with his five fingers, five being the gematria for hay. <laughs> and then he's holding the vav oh in his other hand, and then with his five fingers, okay. another hey. So he's he has the name of God, Tetragrammaton, in his hands, and he blesses God, Hashem. And then, but if you look at it, what we're seeing is actually a picture of Messiah, the bread of life, because we have two loaves, right? And we believe in either two messiahs or one messiah two times. Right. We believe that one of the loaves will be broken right. and one of them will remain unbroken. We lift up both and we have the name of Hashem, so it's Hashem's salvation. And that 
Kala is a picture of what is rectifying the sin of Eve. That was very cool. I appreciate that. So, last comment, Gregory. Oh, I don't know if I it was on the Habitar. It's just interesting that like, the, the four women in the Talmud that are the most beautiful, Rahab is actually one of them. Mm. Which is, I thought was interesting because it doesn't really say, uh, to my just reading through, it didn't really mention that. But it's her, Abigail, Esther, and Sarah, the four most beautiful women in all of Scripture. So anyway, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And Gregory, if you would be so kind as to take us all the way home and end with us in prayer. Glad to. Avina what a privilege it has been today on your Shabbat to study your word, to look for you and all that you've revealed throughout your scriptures, and to do it together within our community. We bless your holy name for providing us the food that you gave us, the wine, and we remember your Messiah Yeshua as we partook of that today. We ask that this Shabbat would be sweet for us and that it would carry us through this week and would strengthen the work of our hands to be diligent stewards of your word, and that we would be men that would uh, stand up and lead our families well, and we would represent you to the best of our abilities with your strength. In Messiah Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Joshua. Well done once again. Thank you, Joshua.